know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, we just heard a sermon, so we don't need a sermon. I know, I know. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. Um, so on a Sunday all about Presbyterian history, today we're going to talk a little bit about that. So that's kind of part one. And then part two, because we're talking about the role of sermon in worship, and it particularly is a Protestant Reformation thing. Um, and then secondly, kind of we'll do a quick little enacting of that, um, about how the sermon impacts us. Would you pray with us? Pray with me. Lord God, we are so grateful for the gift of your love and your grace that we can lay our burdens down today. Whatever we have brought in, Lord, the cross is adequate to heal, to forgive. So thank you, Lord, for the testimony of our children and their faithfulness to the message of the gospel. May we absorb and receive the gospel, Lord, today. To that end, Lord, I pray that you would pour upon me the gift of preaching, that my very frail and broken and human words might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that it would become your living word, uniquely crafted for each and every one of our hearts. We pray this with great confidence, for we pray it in the name of the risen and the reigning Christ. Amen. Well, so to do a quick history, a church history, we have to start, of course, it all starts with Jesus. Um, It all starts with his life and his death and his resurrection. And so this morning, um, one way to begin the story with Jesus is to quote Romans 5, which says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the essence, the nugget of the story of Jesus. God, the creator of all, chooses to come to planet earth in the form of Jesus, fully human, fully divine, to save us from the huge mess of sin in which humanity finds itself. His life is a witness to how we are to live. And we're going to see that in a moment as we look uh, at 1 John. His life is a witness to how we are to live. His death and his resurrection are our salvation. Then... Following Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the apostles and the power of the Holy Spirit, we see that all over the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is integrally involved, and the Holy Spirit continues to be integrally involved. We'll see that. They spend their lives testifying, just like we heard Jimmy read, to what they've seen and to what they've heard with their very own eyes, with their very own hands. And they announce to you and to me the eternal life that was with the Father and revealed to us. And then over the next few centuries, this ragtag community of believers, though regularly persecuted and martyred, organized themselves. They were able to form connections among churches and even elect bishops throughout the regions. Then, and I'm moving fast, in 325, the Roman Emperor Constantine has a vision before a key battle, a cross appears to him and it says, conquer in this name. And being victorious at the battle, shockingly, he chooses to make Christianity Rome's official religion, just like that. It actually didn't happen just like that, but he made it just like that. Actually, the next ruler, Julian, actually tried to undo what Constantine had done, but it never worked. The church then began, right? This thrusts Christianity from relative obscurity into the worldwide spotlight. And there were great things and bad things that came with what happened there. Then in the 11th century, so 
because of longstanding political and theological tensions, I know the church doesn't struggle with that now, um, we see the first break in the one church with the schism of 1054 between what is now called the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. And they have kind of kissed and made up. Uh, It didn't happen until like 1964, so it took a while. Um, But they have. They're doing much better now, I'm glad. Then in the early 1500s, Martin Luther, on October 31st, 1517, posted his 95 objections to the Catholic Church on the door of the Wittenberg Castle. When he did that, he had no idea he was starting what would become the Protestant Reformation. He had no idea. He was just trying to create a conversation. But boy, it took off, right? And in fact, it was really dangerous. And his life was threatened. Many people's lives were threatened um, throughout the process. Then 15 to 20 years later, so just to keep it, right? So Luther does his thing. This doesn't happen in like a year or two. Then 15 to 20 years later, uh, John Calvin, who's a lawyer by training in Geneva arose as another key leader of the Reformation. Like Luther is known as the father or founder of Lutheranism, John Calvin is known in one way as the founder of Presbyterianism. Then in 1556, about 20 years later, so now it's been like 35, 40 years, right? After Calvin joined the Reformation, so 20 years after Calvin joined, former priest named John Knox came from Scotland to Geneva And after working with Calvin, Knox returned to Scotland in 1559 and launched a successful Scottish Reformation, which established Presbyterianism as the official Kirk of Scotland. And what did Gail say the Kirk is? Church. The official Church of Scotland. Now, from then, not long later at all, some of the earliest immigrants to America were English and Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. As you can imagine, the English and the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians didn't necessarily get along. But they were both here, and they kind of um, fought it out. They kept going. But their earliest congregations, the earliest Presbyterian congregations, were founded by the 1630s. So a good 150 years, right, before we became a nation. Long, long time ago. Um, So what's the impact of that? As part of our worship series, let's talk about the impacts of the Reformation, especially on how we experience worship. Luther's original protest at the Wittenberg challenged the Catholic Church's role as the intermediary between people and God. The Catholic Church had a very firm boundary. The priest, everything the priest did, you had to go through the priest, right? Luther believed that the average person should have access to God without intermediaries like a priest For priests were not only their intermediary in prayer, remember they had to do confession, but Sunday worship was said in Latin. And guess who understood Latin? Nobody but the priests. (laughs) Then the scriptures were in Latin. Nobody understood the scriptures or could read the scriptures except the priests. And Luther wanted the people to be able to have access, right, to these things. Um, So... The average citizen had no way of kind of coming in personal contact with God the way it was set up. So the reformers proclaimed that the Bible, not the priest or the traditions of the church, is the authority in all matters of faith and conduct, and that the salvation is by God's grace alone by faith in Jesus. There's no more indulgences. I don't know if you remember that. There was this whole controversy about kind of buying your salvation a little bit. It wasn't exactly that, but 
sort of close to that. So they were responding to that as well. And so as a result, people were encouraged and empowered to pray directly to God. Bibles were translated into the vernacular, uh, which was very controversial. Once again, people's lives were at stake during this time. And the local dialect was spoken in worship services, hence why I'm not speaking Latin right now, right? So it's part of this new emphasis, empowering Christians to read and understand Scripture on their own, the sermon, what I'm doing right now, becomes central to worship. Remember in the Catholic Church, what's central? The Mass, the Eucharist, right? Communion. That was what was central. It moves over. It's still very important, but now the sermon is central. Why? Because since now you're empowered to begin to learn Scripture yourself and study it, the sermon is the way God is using in worship for me, for God, to help you know what to do and how to interpret Scripture and how to apply it to your life. So this is part of the empowerment of the average person. How do you live in your relationship with God? Right, And so the sermon becomes really important. In, uh, in our series on worship, which we're doing right now, we've been talking about how worship is a weekly act of covenant renewal. That God made a covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Remember he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, right? Jesus is the new covenant. And this, every week we're renewing that relationship. We're remembering God's covenant promises. And we're also re-upping on our promises to God. And as such... The sermon retains its central role in worship. For like those earliest students of the Reformation, part of our worship, when we come to worship, part of our worship is listening for God to speak to us through the word read, as we heard Jimmy Jimmy read it, and through the sermon. And then we are to apply it to how we live. And the listening to and for God's voice and the application in our life to live it out, which we heard in the scripture, and I'll talk about in a moment. All of that is an act of worship. This is how we worship God. And so the the sermon becomes real key. What makes the sermon unique? What gives it power? Is it just because I've been to seminary and I study scripture and then you know, maybe I'm charismatic and can keep your attention sort of for 15 minutes? Um, It's not that. Do you know what it is? It's the Holy Spirit. Every week, most of you, I've had you recite my prayer to me because I say it every week, right? Uh, Lord, pour upon me the gift of preaching, right? That my very broken and human words might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, become your living word. So what's happening in the sermon, and I can't tell you, I was talking to Mark Carlton who preached last week, phenomenal job. Mark is so, so good. And I was talking to him about the sermon and how in the midst of it, sometimes God gives you thoughts and words that like, oh, you should say that here. And it's a bit scary because you're like, well, wait, if I say that, can I get back to where I'm going? And so you'll see me at times kind of step over and I'm saying something and then you're watching me struggle as I try to integrate it, right? But that's the thing. The Holy Spirit has something to say to you, and sometimes it's not on this page. Does that make sense? So I'll tell you a quick story about how that worked. When I was at First Pres years ago, uh, back in the late 80s, there was a singles pastor. There was a big singles class, and I know it's been a while, but they recorded every Bible lesson, Sunday school lesson that he taught on, uh, it's this little thing. It's called a cassette tape. It's about this big. (laughs) And he said to me, he was there for like nine years. He said five times in nine years, 
a student of the class would come up to him after the lesson or a month later and would say, when you said this, that was the moment that God changed my life. And he went back to the tape five times and he never said it. He never said it. The power of the Holy Spirit is to change my words, as human and frail as they are, between the time they leave my mouth until they hit your ears, that God may speak what God wants to speak to you. I've had some of you come up to me after worship and say, Jeff, I feel like you're following me around all week. If that's happening, that's good news because that means you're hearing something from God. But let me tell you who's following you around. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit, right? God is with you. God wants to speak to you, right? So for the last few minutes, let's just actively engage in what I've been talking about, right? So in today's passage, John reminds us of two fundamental truths that every Christian lives by. First and fundamentally is the gospel, John says, this is the message we have heard from Jesus and announced to you. God is light. There's no darkness in him. And of course, light is when we live right without sin and darkness involves sin. If we live in the light in the same way he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. We get along. We support. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. Right? So this is the gospel, right? That we are called to receive and be forgiven by God, by the blood of Christ, and to live into the light that results, right? And and that's what's going to come next. In other words, we're empowered to do that. And then in in the second chapter, the second part of what she read, John says that God's calling on how we are, this is how we are to live in the light of the gospel. It says, this is how we know that we know him. How do we know if we know him? If we keep his commandments. So here's the part that moves us from darkness to light, right? Is as we begin, as I said to you, worship is receiving and listening to God's voice and then putting it into practice in your life. That's following his commandments, right? And so he's saying, if we want to know that we know him, we keep his commandments. The one who claims I know him while not keeping his commandments is a liar and the truth's not in him. But the love of God, the love of God is truly perfected in whoever keeps his word. And so this is the challenge, right? Some call it sanctification. This is us becoming more like Christ. So one way we worship God is to live in the light by allowing God's love and forgiveness found in the gospel to be perfected within us by obeying God's rules for life. How are we then to live? What does this look like? What looks like Jesus We are called to live in love sacrificially. And man, is that needed in today's world, right? There's so, selfishness is just writ large everywhere. We need more Jesus in the world and ourselves. And that's the challenge that God always has before us, is that we would sacrificially live in love like Jesus. And so, of course, the reason John starts with the gospel before he talks about living in the commandments, and reminding us of our need for forgiveness is because our sin is what gets in the way, right, of, leave, of leave, keeping his commandments. Here's a personal example. I don't know if you struggle in this way, but there have been certain sins in my life that I was acutely aware of, and yet I didn't face them. Rather, I coddled them. I indulged them. I rationalize them. I excuse them. 
And over time, my lack of courage allowed those sins to cripple me and to cause harm in my relationship with God and in my relationship with others. One example in my life is managing my anger. Great movie, by the way, if you haven't seen it. There was a time in my life where my anger would sneak up on me. I don't know if you saw, there's a great article about Dusty Baker in today's Chronicle where he talks about his anger. It's really a powerful thing because he's saying basically the same thing I am. He says, I've had to learn, I've had to practice how not to do that and I lost it. But it's very unusual, right, for him. So there was a time when my anger would sneak up on me like it did Dusty the other night if you were watching that game. One moment, I'm handling everything fine. The next, it's like a tidal wave of emotion would come over me and the anger would take control and I would find myself yelling at someone or in Dusty's case, throwing a hat at the rail and saying a few choice words to the umpire, right? Every single time that that happened, and it used to be a pattern in my life because I wasn't dealing with the sin, right? So it had room to move. Every time it happened, it did not... I know you're going to be surprised. It did not make things better. (laughs) Right? It did not make things better. It got worse. Love and respect were lost. People were hurt. There were relational consequences with other people and with God. But, as John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. So there's always hope. It's never too late. And it took me a long time, a long time. I'm talking, I started this process probably 12 or 15 years ago. So what does confessing our sins entail if we are to find change and transformation? Part and parcel with confessing in the scriptures is repenting. Jesus starts off the gospel of Mark with repent. The kingdom of God is here. Repent to change your life. So we do confess, but there's more, right? Part of confession is a desire to change and to live in a different way. And so for me, let me tell you what repentance included that has helped me. It included um, a difficult work, honestly. It was not easy. It did not come easy. Um, By becoming present to the impact of my anger on those I love and those I care about. Becoming present to the impact of my anger. So after I would have a blow up, I began to to sit down, and I wasn't perfect at this, but I tried to really hear what that did in their lives. Not easy to do. I didn't like it, right? But I needed to do it. Such change included, so then I began to really work, do the work to change. The change included seeking counseling to better understand why the anger was there and why I was blind to it and to learn how to get ahead of it. And that's one of the things I learned to practice. How do I stay ahead of it? It included experimenting with God to find new spiritual practices, new spiritual practices that God used to help me become more attuned to my emotions and learn to better manage my anxiety so that the sin of anger has much less control over me now. That's what laying your burden down means, right? As we heard the children sing, that's what it really means because I don't want to pick it back up. And that's what I was doing, right? I might confess my sin, but if I don't repent of it and do the work, guess what? I'm, I'm picking it back up. I'm just going to pick it back up because I'm going to do it again. 
The bottom line is, God not only forgave me of the sin of anger as I began to repent and, and really struggle with it, he also began to cleanse me, to remove, to some extent, the anger from me. And as God's work of grace in me met my effort to face my sin, I was then empowered to obey God's commandment to sacrificially love. You see how that works? That's what John's talking about. He's saying, hey, understand the gospel and obey God's commands because that's the life that God calls us to live. So, does that mean I no longer struggle with anger? Uh, No. I still can overreact. I still can get angry. But by God's grace, it's different now. I can usually recognize it before it overtakes me. And if I do lose my temper, I now have the skill set to rein it in so that it doesn't hurt those around me nearly so much. So it's a practice. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in me. This is why the sermon and scripture and what it's teaching, right now what it's teaching you and what it's reminding me of, right, in this particular instance, is an act of worship. Because I'm honoring God with my life. By doing the hard work that's in front of me. This is how we know we know him. If we keep his commandments. And so as I said earlier. One way we worship God is by allowing God's love and forgiveness. Found in the gospel. To be truly perfected within us. By obeying God's rules for life. What about you? Are you like me? Are you rationalizing sins that are keeping you from obeying God's commandment to love and to love well? What we do with the message of the sermon is an act of worship. What might God be challenging each of us to face in order to keep his commandment to love one another? What do we struggle with that needs to be faced, needs to be confessed, needs to be healed? Because life, light is on the other side of that. May we worship God in the way we respond to what God is saying to us today. So that, as John writes, that the love of God will truly be perfected in whomever keeps his word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.